Hello and welcome to Backflips and Nerds, the baseball podcast with a British twist. I'm your host, John McGee. And today I've got a really special guest who has gained notoriety this offseason for being the first ever player to strike out Minnesota twin sensation Williams Astadio twice in the same game whilst playing for the Bravos in the Venezuelan Winter League. Before that, he spent time in the Rays organisation and in a couple of our other favourite leagues with the Bandits of the Australian Baseball League and the Brothers of the CPBL in Taiwan. Welcome to Backflips and Nerds, Rick Teasley. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. Uh, pleasure to have you, mate. I'm really excited about having this conversation there. For those who haven't heard it, uh, do go away and check out Rick's interview with Jeff Sullivan and Ben Lindbergh, uh, the great Jeff Sullivan and Ben Lindbergh of uh, Fangraph's Effectively Wild podcast. Um, there's some really great stuff in there about the Venezuelan Winter League, uh, but I hope we're going to have a bit of a different take on your career, Rick. Maybe some of the same questions, but some different ones. So we'll see how we go. All right. Perfect. Great. So uh, let's start with the career. So uh, for those of you who who, uh, who don't know you, you've been you've been around the houses a bit. You've played some indie ball. You've played in Australia. You've played in Taiwan and you've played in Venezuela. But your story started uh, with the Tampa Bay Rays organization. So when we have guests on uh, to have a conversation, uh, it's always really interesting and exciting to hear about their, their draft day story. And I'm sure yours will be no different. So um can you tell us about it? Can you take us back to uh, to the time you, you were selected as a, as a college senior, I believe? Yes, I was a college senior. Um, I wasn't sure that I was going to get drafted. I was getting a lot of attention from scouts, um, especially p- pitching in a few big games where there were scouts there to watch the other guy pitch. Um, I started to notice they came out to my games and I got letters and questionnaires and you fill all these things out to try and you know tell them all about yourself, your background, and they really want to know who you are mentally. And I was kind of impressed by how in depth those things were. So, you know, you talk to scouts and I remember my, um, my head coach at St. Leo university, my senior year was a former giant scout, Sean O'Connor, awesome guy, awesome coach. But he said, Hey man, if, uh, if any scout tells you you're going to get drafted, unless you're a top three round pick or top, top five round pick, um, he goes, write their name down, circle it, and write idiot right next to it because they don't know for a fact. All they can do is submit your name. You know, they can tell them they really like you and hope for the best. He goes, so don't go into it thinking it's going to happen. He said, go into it with, with the best hopes and have, you know, all your stuff in line. So I tell that to my mom. And, of course, um, she's very supportive. She's, and you know, the parents are like that. To have parents like that is good. So she wants to throw this draft party. <laughs> and I said, Mom, I said, please don't throw a draft party. I know guys who have thrown draft parties before and they don't get drafted. And it's probably the most embarrassing thing. And it makes the experience even worse for um for not happening. So she says, OK, OK. About a week goes by and I get an email from my mom and she says, OK, we're hosting the not draft party. <laughs> <laughs> we're hosting the not draft party. We're going to get a uh, little condo on the beach and just have some just a few family and friends, really close family friends. And uh, we'll just, you know, hang out, have some food and see what happens. So I just, okay, here we go. We're going to do this. I invited my best friend and some close family. So we were there at the beach all day and we're watching. It was uh, the last day of the draft. And uh, we're watching, we're watching. I see some of my friends get picked up and I congratulated them. And I'm just staring at this iPad waiting. I'm, I'm watching the names come up. I don't hear them. Mm. I didn't know you could listen to the draft. So I'm a little delayed, I think, but I'm watching these names pop up. And then my family's like, Rick, just get something to eat. Just relax. And I didn't want to put the iPad down. Finally, I just said, okay, fine. I'll put the iPad down. 
I go and dish up a plate and uh, I, I get my phone starts ringing and you, you know, your phone rings, you think it's a scout. Oh, it's the team drafting me right now. My phone starts ringing. It was one of my college teammates, Dylan Vitali, my third baseman. And uh, I'm like, why would Dylan call me right now? Like, I'm freaking out. My phone rings. It's not a scout. I'm, <laughs> I answer the phone. I'm like, hey, what's up, man? He goes, congrats. <laughs> and at that time, my sister stands up and says, hey, Rick Teasley, Tampa Bay Rays, 23rd round, holding the iPad up. I hadn't heard it. He was listening to it. He was ahead of me. <laughs> so he was on the phone with me as it happened. And it's just, man, like I couldn't believe it. It's a, it was a dream come true. I just, like I, I told them on the uh, Fangrass podcast, I, I was just wanted to sign a contract. That was my goal. And um, to actually get drafted was just, oh, man, it was it was surreal. So awesome day. We celebrated, had a good time with family. And, you know, it was all a blur that looking back, I wish I had like oh, just put the phone down and relax and really soak it in. But it's tough to do and something like it's a dream. And uh, just didn't didn't occur to me at the, on the day that it was such a big deal. So are you, are you glad that your mom uh, threw the party after all then? I am. Yeah. Uh, in hindsight, I'm very glad. But I said, Mom, if I wouldn't have gotten drafted, I would have been pretty upset. <laughs> like I told her. But that's, you know, that's just how she is. She's awesome. And yeah. Great mom. Great mom. We had fun. That's that's great. I've heard some really good ones. And that, that that's uh, that's going to be up there with my favorites. Uh, one, of, one of our previous <laughs> guests got, got drafted whilst he was sat in the bleachers at Coors Field. Well, he got he just because oh, wow. he wasn't expecting it, and he just got a notification. Oh, I got yeah. drafted! <laughs> so that one's cool, though. Um, so you you went to the Rays, and you you were only with the Rays organization for a year, weren't you? You played in you played in Low A up in uh, in Hudson Valley. How how did you find that? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was warm. I didn't know what the weather was going to be. I had never played any further north in um in the United States than South Carolina one mm -hmm. summer. So going up north, I didn't know what the weather would be like, and it was warmer than I expected. So I liked that. Um, the place was awesome. We we sold well. We had a lot of fans on the weekends, especially up there, and it was a, just a great experience as a first year to kind of get your feet wet and do that. And uh, a lot of college guys straight out of college went there. So it was definitely a, a, one of the more fun leagues um, that I played in. I really enjoyed my time there, for sure. And you, you did you did pretty well, didn't you? So um, so was it was it a bit of a surprise for you when they when they decided to move on from you? Or, I, mean, I know you played with some really good players, like Blake Snell was a guy who was around when you you were in the in the system. So did it come as a surprise? I mean, was that the opposite end of the curve from from where you were when you got drafted? Well, see, I when I got I, out of college, you, you don't know a whole lot. You think you know a lot about baseball until you're in professional baseball. And even my first mm -hmm. year, I didn't know a ton. You do know that certain guys get more attention because they've put more uh, value into them money-wise or investment-wise. So you know that um, those guys are really good. I mean, I, I was in a, on a team. Uh, Jamie Schultz was there. Uh, mm -hmm. Jake Ferreira was there. All those guys. So, you know, you, don't, you, you look around and you go, okay, that guy will be a big leaguer. That guy will be a big leaguer. And you just, hey, if I just put up good numbers, keep my head down, don't get in trouble, like do my thing, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. So I put up good numbers and I went into spring training and I, you know, I pitched best I could through well, but like I told him, I, I, I wasn't throwing very hard, but I didn't, mm. I didn't realize, or I didn't prioritize throwing hard and I didn't understand, you know, Hey, if I'm just, put, if I'm putting up good numbers, it's fine, but they're very much projecting you. They're looking at, okay, mm. how hard is he throwing now? How hard will he throw four years from now? 
because it matters when you get to the big leagues. And then when I've faced big league hitters, you can tell those guys can hit, you know, a well-located pitch. Mm. Um, you got to have something behind it. That didn't occur to me until a couple of years ago. So I never mm. even tried. I, all I tried to do was make the ball move and get guys out, get guys to ground out fast, you know. And uh, that's why it was in that time of my career. There wasn't a whole lot of strikeouts per inning pitched for me. I was mm. more of, hey, let them put play. If guys get in scoring position, then make your pitches, try to strike someone out. But uh, yeah, you, you look back and you go, okay, I wish I would have known certain things because I might have stuck around longer if I was focused on doing the right, you know, improving different parts of my game. So, yeah. Do you think you were, in a way, a bit, a bit of a victim of the, the way the game's changed over the last five or ten years? It's it's all about fireballers, with the exception of maybe Keichel. There's, there's not many guys who are spotting the corners these days, are there? Yeah, no, no, I definitely think that's a big factor. Um, you know, like I said, I I wanted a chance to go out there and, you know, if I would have got, if I would have failed or something, if I would have really went out there and gotten beat up, okay, maybe I changed something. Maybe I... I've always said I maybe I'd switch down and throw a little sidearm because I already have a low arm slot. Mm. But uh, I try not to change too much if it's working. You know, if the results are working, I try not to change too much. Um, and I don't want to alter who I am. I, I, the scout that drafted me, Ronnie Merrill, great baseball guy. He was in the race system for a while. He's now a scout with the Yankees. And when he drafted me, he told me, hey, Rick, you're going to go out there and you're going to see guys throwing hard. You're going to see 99 do not do that. Don't try to do that. That's not you. That's not why you got drafted. That's not who you are. And if you try to throw like that, you're going to get released fast or injured. <laughs> so I took that advice and I've uh, just ran with that my whole career. Now it hasn't failed me. I mean, MLB is one route to go and it's that door isn't completely shut for me. I don't think yet. Yes, it's tough. I don't throw 95, but um, like I said, I've found out over the years, there's money elsewhere in baseball. There are other leagues, there are other places, the other side of the world that a lot of guys don't know about um, that you can go and you can play and be successful and make decent money and continue your career and have a blast. So for those who haven't seen you pitch before, what 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 is your pitch mix? What what are we looking at in terms of the, the Rick Teasley armory? What How are you getting the guys out? Uh, I throw... I throw you know, four-seam fastball, two-seam fastball. Usually it's a, a four-seam fastball to my glove side of the plate and a two-seam uh, sinker on the other side. But I throw, you know, I throw a decent amount of cutters. Mm-hmm. And I use, you know, you got to set them up with that to, to throw the change-up. I think I, my change-up's developed and it's, it's getting better every year, I feel like. So I throw a lot of, you know, cutters, change-ups, sinkers, just things to kind of keep guys off balance, in and out. I like Keiko. You like to look at guys like Greg Maddox. I mean, I'm mm. not comparing myself to Greg Maddox. That guy's the best <laughs> to ever do it. But you go that style of, yeah, it's it's that style of, okay, I don't need to throw hard. I need to throw this where I want to throw it. And if I locate this pitch, there's not a lot of hitters that can do much with it. So really you're kind of pitching against yourself. So I use that cutter in, I use the sinker away, throwing a change up when I need to. And it's mostly trying to set a hitter up or see what the hitter's trying to do throughout the game or throughout the at-bat and just try to outsmart a guy. So so how does someone like yeah, you so go about... Four seam. Goes sure. how, does, uh, how does someone like you go about developing your game then? Because you're, you know, you're, you're working, I guess, into your own steam to try and be a better player. How, are, you, are you watching a lot of video of the, the Maddoxes and the Keikles? Are you, are you a big guy on, you know, Pitching Ninja on Twitter? How are you learning your new grips and your, your new ideas that are going to get the guys out next year? Well, I've had to... I've been lucky enough to actually start playing with guys who have significant big league time. Um, 
when I was at a younger age, when I was 26, I had mm-hmm. just turned 26, had uh, Jerome Williams on my team, who was a long time big leaguer. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis Blackley I played with in Australia, mm-hmm. and he was one of the first guys that even started talking about setting hitters up and watching a hitter and, and seeing what, you know, what does it mean when a hitter pulls a ball 500 feet foul? Does that mean you should shy away and go away? You know, you, you, you hear different perspectives from guys and you're like, wow, I never even thought of the game like that. And so you learn from guys that have done it, that have been there, that have been in the big leagues. Um, there was a guy in Venezuela, Logan Darnell. He pitched mm-hmm. in the big leagues for a little bit with the twins and him would talk a lot with lefties with very similar arsenals. And we would talk a lot about how to get, how you get really, really good hitters out. And um, it's never by, for us, it's never by trying to throw it harder or trying to throw the perfect pitch, but more of just making making good pitches down the zone, you know, making sure you mentally lock in and realize that, hey, just, just execute. So it's from a mental standpoint, you have, I, I think most of my problems come when it's like, okay, I need to focus better on my breathing. I need to relax. I need to take a little bit of time between pitches and focus, you know, it's all a focus thing. And um, you work bullpens, you try to, you try to put the ball exactly where you want to put it during bullpens and practice that, you know, grips, movements. Um, that's just kind of how I work on it week to week and make adjustments based off of what I can feel that I'm doing wrong in the game or what I can see on video. So uh, it's an interesting point you make there about your, your focus and your breathing and your centering yourself. We had um, Josh Tolls on a, on a podcast uh, last year who I know you played in Australia, not on your team, but with you. He said the same thing about trying to forget the last pitch. Is that something that you find yourself doing, just keeping yourself in the moment, just thinking about the next pitch and trying to trying to hit your spot? Yes, yes, absolutely. You have to be one pitch at a time. And it's it's tedious, and it can be mentally exhausting after you throw 100 of them in a game. <laughs> but um, that was something I learned when you're in Taiwan and there's 30,000 fans and they're all making noise nonstop the whole game. And your adrenaline will get you going. It's it's and it's you you the game can speed up on you. And it took me a few bad starts for for me to talk to some of the guys that have had success there that tell me, dude, you got to really work on just breathing and you, you got to block it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm good at blocking it out, but you you just get too hyped up. The way you do that is by controlling your breathing. It relaxes your body, and you really have to just think about the next pitch, not worry about the last one. If it was good, great. If it was bad make an adjustment because otherwise this is going to be a very long inning and you're going to have a very short outing. So that's how it goes. Is there any, is there any tips that you would particularly give people? Is, is it just getting your, your breathing patterns right? Or is there, are, are, are there any other techniques that work for you particularly that, that are, would be useful for any pitchers that are listening to us? Um, I really like um, visualization, pregame visualization. Um, you've got to almost kind of close your eyes and see yourself if you're going to want to throw that game. Um, I almost try to get as detailed as, you know, pitching the other team in the uniform that they'll be wearing, you know, and me in the uniform I'll be wearing and just seeing my, seeing my balance throughout my delivery. Cause I think that balance is very, very much key to repeating your delivery and keeping the same release point. So it's more of like, okay, visualize that yourself getting the fastball and the cutter on this side of the plate throwing that change up that gets buried and watching the guy swing and miss. Okay. And then you go out and when you start your warmups, you start throwing down the line before the game, you, you're making those same, those same pitches and you're really focusing on the things that you need to focus on as a pitcher instead of worrying about oh, what other guys are going to do or who's the dangerous hitter in their lineup. 
you're aware of their lineup, you're aware of what they can do. But if you're not focused on what you need to do, you're going to miss execute pitches and you're going to give up a lot of runs. And and what preparation can you do? Obviously, you, you've been playing in, in Venezuela. We we mentioned Astadio earlier, and you know there's players like Delman Young, and you mentioned some of the other guys with major league experience. You know that they're going to be the guy. What preparation can you do for those sorts of guys? And you know the same thing in the Atlantic League when you're playing with Somerset. Again, there's some guys in there who are who have got significant experience at high levels in baseball. Do you, do you get scouting reports? Do you get video? Do you get papers? Or do you just know you know this this is the big guy? I've got to make sure I get this guy out. Yeah, I mean you get you get your scouting reports, so you know something about them. You know, okay, he does like the ball inside. Hey, he does like to extend his hands. You just and when the guy can can hurt you on one pitch like Delman Young, you go, okay, well this guy, if I make a mistake, he's more likely to hit it over the fence than almost anybody else in this league. So, <laughs> you know, you don't say, oh, don't make a mistake. You say be aggressive towards the bottom of the zone. Or if his weakness is, you know, he likes the ball away. Hey, throw that pitch in. If you miss miss in, he'll get out of the way. He'll get out of the way. <laughs> you don't want to get hit, and you're trying to hit guys. But if you're afraid to pitch in, you are going to get crushed. So you you get it in there. You get it in there hard. Worst case scenario, you back him off the plate. Maybe he gets angry. That's fine. Um, you know, you've got to be able to do that. And it's more focused on, hey, this is what I need to do. You know, and it's situational. If you're up four runs with a base open, the last thing I want to do is just walk that guy and put a guy on base. So, hey, go after him. And mm-hmm. he hits a mile. I mean, in batting practice, hitters bat 400. So you throw a BP fastball, they bat 400. So nobody on base and two outs, just let him hit it, whatever. Um, if you've got a big lead, pitch with it. But, yeah, that's how I, that's how I try to go about it. <laughs> Great. Um, so that's interesting to hear a little bit about how you think about yourself as a, as a pitcher whilst you're, you're on the mound. Um, what what did you do when you, you had that knockback, when you, when you were cut from the raise during spring training? What, what was your mental process about how you were going to – break everything down for yourself and find a new opportunity, which you, you did. You moved to the, the Frontier League to, to get back into baseball. How did you, what was the process for you to, to go through there? Well, first I was like, you asked me earlier, what was, was I surprised? I was very surprised. Um, I, I, you know, I packed my stuff and I was, I was just thinking, I didn't understand. I didn't understand. And I said, oh, my phone will ring any second. Somebody else will sign me because I pitched against a lot of, of the other MLB teams and their farm systems while I was up there. Somebody's going to call me in the next two hours. Like, I'll get. But at the time, you don't realize all those teams are making cuts. Everybody mm-hmm. is cutting 100 guys in the next week. So nobody's going to call you. You need to go somewhere where you can play. If you're pitching well, it would be stupid to walk away from the game. So I got a call the next day from Mike Pinto with the Illinois Miners. And I'm thinking independent ball. I didn't know anything about independent ball. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to go play independent ball. I'm, you know, I had a good season. I want to, but, uh, you know, I did some research. I talked to some people and it was a lot better than I thought it would be. I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll go do this. You know, I signed and I went there. And first day I showed up, uh, we had guys that were on, there was a guy from the 40 man from the Braves. There was a, one of the guys threw a hundred miles an hour and got signed the next day. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so, you know, I went in with that, tried to, tried to prove myself there. I had a couple of good seasons, went off to Australia and it's just been like one thing for the other. I can't tell you how the whole puzzle came together, but it was just one thing at a time. I, I pitched in Southern Illinois and pitched well enough to get to Australia, pitched well enough to go to uh, Somerset. It's just been this whole long journey and it's 
I just try to take it one thing at a time. That's why now I try not to look too far ahead because as long as I worry about what I'm doing right now, it's, it's worked out in the past. So I worry about what's at hand and it'll work out in the future. That's right. So we have we have a few people here in in the UK who who do enjoy independently baseball. One of one of our friends actually quit his job to go travelling around and watching independently baseball last year because he's a, he's a bit of a crazy dude. We're going to try and make sure he comes and visits you wherever you end up next year. Um, but what is it that's different for those who who aren't aren't across what independent ball is? What what's different because it. From everyone that we've spoken to, it's not the standard of the game. Like the game is is really good quality baseball. So what are, what are people going to see if they're coming to watch you at Somerset or or are going to watch your your former friends down in Southern Illinois? Oh well, I heard that podcast, the Baseball Brit. I was listening. Oh to yeah, that, um, that's good. I was working on the condos. So yeah, that was cool. It was cool to hear that. Cool to hear the names he mentioned and you know the places he went. I was I've been to a lot of those places or had friends that go a lot of those places. So it was cool, but. Um, independent ball. I mean, it's a lot of guys that, you know, maybe they had a good, good career and then they had a bad year and now they're an independent ball and they're trying to keep their career alive because they're still good enough to pitch. They're still good enough to get outs. They're still good enough to get professional hitters out. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just trying to keep it going or make money. Like I said, you go to Somerset and you pitch well, you get a job in Venezuela for the off season or you can go to Taiwan. So it's guys that are trying not to quite give it up right just yet. I don't think anyone's trying to be a career independent ball player, but um, it's very high quality baseball, especially in the Atlantic league, the frontier league, the American association, Can-Am league, the top four um, where players, I mean, there's ex big leaguers, guys that significant double exploit time. And, you know, you, you go to those games and you see a team out there trying to win. You see guys out there fighting for their careers that aren't necessarily going through the grind of minor league baseball. It's definitely a grind independent hmm. ball, but I think, the guys gel more, gel more as a team and uh, say, hey, we're all here trying to do the same thing. We're here because we love baseball. We're here because we want to keep playing and we're keeping it alive. So it's much more of a, I think as a fan, you would enjoy to go to an independent ball game and watch the atmosphere, especially playoff because um, these guys are playing, playing their butts off. Yeah, I mean, that's what, so, so Joey, baseball Brit, that's what he said. You know, the difference between that and if he's, you know, going to see the Springfield Oh, the, the Memphis Redbirds, for example, is that it really matters in the Indy Leagues because these guys are, are playing for their future. And you're also playing to win, which oftentimes, you know, I've been to minor league baseball. It's, you know, they're, they're trying to get better, but they're not. They don't care who wins, really. So that's that's the main difference, I think. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, minor league ball. A lot of times you'll have a guy who's going to go out there and hey. That's our pitcher tonight. He's going to go out there and throw 75 pitches. He might go two innings, give up nine runs. He might go five <laughs> innings, give up zero runs. He's getting pulled after those 75 pitches, and that's it. Whereas an in independent ball, it's like, hey, we're throwing our ace out there. We're trying to win this game. You're going to see guys getting out and get pumped up. You're going to see a guy make a diving play and a gap because he wants to win the game, not because he's not trying to get hurt because he's a prospect. You know, I, Not to say that that's how all minor league games go, but you have some of that. Um, in minor league baseball and, and you don't see as much of it in uh, independent baseball. So I, I just think the games are played a little bit harder um, because guys are fighting fighting for another chance instead of, okay, try to stay healthy and put up good numbers. No, these guys are fighting. Yeah, uh, so I, I saw um, Vlad Guerrero Jr. playing double A last year and it's fair to say he wasn't sprinting to first base. 
Uh, but then, uh, ironically, he he fell over and he uh, injured his hamstring. So, you know, it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> so I saw the game where he was injured wow. and he was out for two months <laughs> from falling over. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's going to be a hustler. Uh, it's my view of uh, what people are going to think of him when he comes up later <laughs> in the season. <laughs> um, so... We've mentioned it already that you, you played in Australia. That was the first place that um, I became aware of, of you as a baseball player. Um, there's, again, a bit of a, a, a sort of cult niche of uh, Australian baseball here in the UK, largely because it's played, because of the time difference, it's played first thing in the morning here. So if you get up with a hangover on a Saturday, uh, it's a good thing to tune into on YouTube. So how did you end up in Australia? That That's a really intriguing one, because I know that a lot of guys go over there from the American Association, from the Atlantic League. How, how did that happen for you? Oh, man, I was, uh, I was, it was my second year in Southern Illinois, and I had put up good numbers my first year, and uh, I was putting up better numbers my second year. Mm -hmm. And um, I pitched against a team called Tra the Traverse City Beach Bums. Mm -hmm. I pitched against them probably three times, and all three times I threw really good games, really good games against them. And so Jim Bennett, who is the pitching coach with the Brisbane Bandits, he called his friend, Dan Roan, who was the manager of Traverse City. And he said, hey, man, you have a lefty. Like, I need a lefty. And uh, he said, well, I mean, there's a guy in southern Illinois that's, he's, you know, he throws pretty well. He's lefty. Give him a call. And so I, I got the call from Jim. Bennett. It was actually on one of my start days. And I told him I'd give him a call the next day. And in those 24 hours, I talked to some of the guys about what they knew about Australia. And obviously, everybody wants to go to Australia. It's a great place. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I made a quick, easy decision to go on out there. And I played for them with Mark Reedy, who's the CEO of the Bandits. Uh, awesome guy. Took great care of us. Just made us feel like we were not on the other side of the world. Like, we had a home. Uh, I loved my time there. I had two years there, and we won two championships. Now they've won four in a row. And it's, I loved Australia. Um that's how I got out there. And the, the second year was even an easier decision to go back out there. And then, you know, after my third year being in Taiwan, I would have made it late to the season. And then I had the offer in Venezuela and I decided to go with that just to try something different. But uh, yeah, I've loved Australia. I was probably one, it's probably my favorite places I've ever been in my life. Yeah. Well, you know, ch championship winning season is a championship winning season, right? And you, you, you had two, but you said already you played with some good players out there. You know, you mentioned Travis Blackley already. There's a lot of guys who've uh, seen, seen minors experience in that Brisbane team as well. And of course, then they had some of your, your, uh, your teammates and the brothers came along and uh, helped them sweep up last year. So it's, it's, it's good quality baseball out there, isn't it? It really is. Um, those guys are good. They, they you got you got your big leaguers that can leave the ballpark. Uh, there's those Canelli guys over in Perth that uh, were always annoying to pitch to. I mean, those guys they they all have significant time and high levels of baseball, and you weren't expecting that because you don't hear a ton about Australians in American baseball. But then you go to a team and they all these guys have played affiliated baseball, whether it's single A, double A. Like these guys are good players, and uh, so you go over there and yeah, if you're not ready for that, you're going to get your butt kicked. But went over there we, I met some great people had some awesome teammates and I had a blast and yeah winning is winning is even more fun so I definitely loved it and it's high quality baseball and I encourage anyone who's even interested in baseball to go see a game if they can because it's a great league to go watch yeah and uh, an another great league uh, to watch which is which is my my personal favorite baseball league uh, which I get a lot of stick for from my fellow uh, fellow podcasters is uh 
is the Taiwanese league, the CPBL, uh, which I love because basically everyone involved in it seems to be absolutely crazy. The baseball played is like a combination of old school 1980s, just bunt the runner along with balls getting jacked out of the park here, there and everywhere, uh, whilst everyone goes raucously mad. So um, how did you end up in Taiwan and how did you find it? It seems like it's just mayhem. It was mayhem. And uh, so I was I was pitching well in Somerset mm-hmm. and uh, somebody asked me, hey, Taiwan, just, you know, John Hunt, he has a lot of connections out there. And he's the pitching coach in Somerset now. And uh, he said, yeah, Taiwan, you know, Taiwan called. They're interested in signing you. Would you go out there? I said, oh, absolutely. I know, I know they pay well out there. And that's a really good league to go to, mm. you know. And so when it happened, I got on a contract and flew out there. And, you know, I went to the minor leagues for a month. It was the, the thing was like, all right, pitch some outings in the minor leagues. And then maybe you get called up. And if not, they'll bring you back next year. So I pitched, you know, I pitched well in the minor leagues and got the call up and went up there and you're not prepared for there's no way to mentally prepare for what you're about to experience as a pitcher in Taiwan. <laughs> it was different. I, was, I mean, it's, uh, it's different than any baseball I've ever played. It's almost a different sport. It seems like, so when you talk about mayhem, it's yeah, it's mayhem. There's a lot of home runs and everybody in that league can bunt and everybody in that league, it's like could run. So you never knew what the guy was doing. I had trouble figuring out what guys approaches were. And uh, I think my, my biggest problem when I went over there was that I started changing things about myself. Like I told you about earlier that I shouldn't do. I started changing mm-hmm. things to try and adjust to, okay, well, I need, I need to try and learn a curveball. So I'm throwing as many curveballs as I can trying to, trying to get something that will go down because these guys, they keep their bat in the zone for so mm-hmm. long. They can foul off nine pitches in a row and hit a single up the middle, and you're just like, wow, well, that was a waste of ten pitches. <laughs> but uh, – <laughs> It was different, but I started to figure it out towards the end. I talked more with Brian Woodall, who's out there with Fubon now. Awesome mm-hmm. guy. Orlando Roman, awesome teammate. You guys were great guys. And they, you know, towards the end, we sat down. And I said, Rick, you know, if you don't come back next year, we don't think this is going to be your last time out here. You're young. Most guys don't come out here at this age. Um, you've learned. Now you'll know when you come back what to expect. And you'll know what to work on from now until that day happens, whenever it is. So, uh, yeah, definitely. I'll know what to expect better next time. And, uh, know what to work on and but yeah it's a it's, like i said it's like it's almost like a college football i don't know if you're familiar with college gridiron yeah, football yeah. in yeah. america but uh, it's like that kind of atmosphere where people are just going wild there's noise the whole game those fans are very crazy fans and uh yeah it was different to go out you, you hear about it you hear okay that it's, it's wild out there until you're on the mound looking around you're like man this is crazy so i uh, <laughs> definitely needed to land that's that's when i really started work on Hey, focus, breathe, relax, because that was the biggest. Those were some of the biggest games I had ever pitched up to that point in my life. So um, it was it was sort of a combination of the the way they played the game and the way that the uh, they were fans of the game that they were, that was distracting. Really, so you're right about some of those at bats when people uh, were people going on about that Brandon Bell 21 pitch at bat last year. I was thinking these these guys have not watched Taiwanese baseball. <laughs> this is every other batter <laughs> routinely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember every. It seemed like every outing, I'd be in the fourth inning, and I'd have 109 pitches already. And I'm just, what? How does this happen? You know, how did any? As those guys, they can, they can hit. I'll tell you that. Yeah, and it's and it's really hot as well, right? And and gripping the ball is hard. <laughs> yes, it's yeah, up- yeah. I mean, I've pitched in heat my whole life in Florida, and 
uh, it was it was just as hot, if not more so, in Taiwan. So as far as sweat going down your arm, I for the first time I had to use the powder behind the mound to try and just stop the sweat from going down my forearm and getting on my hand because it made pitching even if if it was possible to be more difficult, it made it more difficult. So definitely. And what was it like to be in um, to, to be in and around the the country as well because. It, it is it is basically the national sport over there like so we a friend of ours andy who, who he's, he paints baseball parks and he was out there a few times this year and he did a couple of spots for the tv and people were coming up to him in bars and buying him drinks and he's just a guy who paints baseball parks what, what was it like for you if it was like that for andy oh, man it was wild uh you talk about experiencing life of it was like being an a-list celebrity out there um everybody knows who you are and if they don't know who you are you, they think you've got to be somebody because you're you're you know an american guy out there in taiwan <laughs> um so going out and about fan there were always fans or people there were very friendly they just want a picture they want to you know sign something so it was off very nice people and going out and about and seeing the way that they are the way that they live very similar to america from uh the things they like to go do um, but just the language difference, the, the, the difference when you look at a menu is like, okay, yeah, I don't have a clue. And, uh, <laughs> it was fun to go out there and experience that. And I tried to, you know, go as many places as I can to see, you know, what is it like out there? And it's definitely you gain insight and, and appreciation for all different parts of the world. Were there any experiences that you, that you had out there that, that, that you remember particularly, either in terms of interaction with the fans or just, you know, this being culture that was so different from what you were used to? Well, is I think some of the best memories I had of that um, one of the most. You, know, you come out after the locker room, you're going towards the bus, and there's a barricade of just there's a ton of fans there waiting. A lot of them just want to say hi and see you, and they're all to cheer for you. Even if you pitched a bad game, they're cheering for you. They're going nuts. They they wave. They they just want you to wave at them. And as the bus, they stand there the whole time until the bus leaves and they all wave goodbye out the window. And it was, it was awesome, man. I'd never seen anything like that before. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit different from Hudson Valley, I imagine. It's slightly different from Hudson Valley. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've touched on some of these topics already, but I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about being, being a sort of free agent in baseball, if you will, because you know, you've, You've you've pitched all over the world in Taiwan and Venezuela in uh, in Australia and of course up in uh, Somerset and in the Frontier League. How do you get a club? You've said that you know it's through connections of connections. Is is it just kind of luck? You know, being good, of course, is a good start, Rick. Of course, <laughs> obviously, yeah. but is that how it is? I mean, do you have an agent? Is it, or do you sometimes are you pursuing these things yourself? Really, um, me myself, I have to pursue things myself. Uh... I got drafted without an agent. I didn't know if I was going to get drafted. So, and no agent really knew if I was going to get drafted. So no agent approached me before the draft. Um, the draft happened and I'm there. So then I started hearing from agents and I was like, what do I need an agent for just to give a percentage of my paycheck? Mm. I'll just pitch well and I'll stay. I don't need an agent to do anything for me. Really? Um, I was wrong. When you get released, <laughs> you go oh man what do i do now like i don't have an agent and the last thing anybody wants to do as if you're an indie ball player um is to come hey i'll be your agent i'll try to you know do the hard part yeah. and get you a job when you're an indie ball so it's almost impossible to find an agent now and uh so i do a lot of the work myself I, if i really want to go to a place i try to reach out to people and say hey i'm i want to pitch you know here's my resume i'm lefty here are my stats from the all these places and you just 
keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. Um, so that's kind of for me as being a free agent, it's like, okay, where am I going to go next year? I'd love to go back to Taiwan if that's an option. Mexico would be cool. But if I go back to Somerset, I can go there and A, win a championship, B, pitch well enough to get signed by MLB or Taiwan. You know, you just kind of weigh options and send some messages and try to see what's out there and make the best decision you can with what, what you can access yourself. And, and how do you do that? I mean, I, I get the sense from from talking to people uh, in these interviews and, and offline that baseball is a pretty small world, really, in its own way. So you, are you sort of sending your resume through friends of friends are you, or are you sort of cold emailing the, the GM of the Fubon Guardians? Well, I wish I had his email. I would do <laughs> it. But, uh, I'm, mainly you talk to guys and you say, hey, man, um, you were in Mexico this year, right? Yeah. How'd you like it? Oh, it was sweet. You know, I, I enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, do you have a contact for a guy or would you be able to send a message, just send my name, say that I'm lefty and tell him to look me up and tell him I'm interested in coming. Uh, give him my number, like let him know. And um, if you have good enough numbers, usually you'll hear back something at least. Um, so yeah, you just got, that's kind of how you go about it. Word of mouth, knowing somebody who's been there or knowing somebody who might know somebody who can have a contact. It's a lot of reaching out yourself, but that's the work you have to do um, when you're at this point in your career trying to get fight for a job. You know, it's up to you. Nobody else is going to do it for you. You got to do it for yourself. So uh, my next question was going to be about your daily routine, and it, and it sounds like it's it's a lot of emailing, <laughs> which I wasn't expecting. So w what is your daily routine as, as a guy who's essentially in charge of, you know, looking after your, your number one asset, which is your left arm? How do you go about planning your training? Do you have a PT? How does it differ in the off-season? All those things. I, I don't have a PT. My, I mean, my deal, I've sent some messages out, obviously, to, to reach out to some teams that I'd be interested in going to. Um, but as far as, you know, daily routine, I'm, I'm in St. Augustine now with my fiance, which mm -hmm. is great to be home again after being away for so long. So I've been home about three weeks to a month and I'm enjoying that daily thing. She works all week. So the weekends we get to go out and do fun things. But during the week now, especially I took some time off so my body could you know recover a little bit. Um, this past week, I started my workouts again and I just I said oh, I could get a PT you know, and pay all that extra money, or I can just, Hey, be my own PT, push yourself as hard as you can go. And that might've <laughs> bit me a little bit this week. Cause I'm pretty sore from that, but, <laughs> but just, you know, push yourself. No, in, at this point, I know kind of what I need to do to um, be ready for the season, to stay healthy for the season, to get strong. And then now this week is okay. Start throwing. I'm going to start throwing. I got a net that I set up in uh, the spare lot down the road and I throw into a net and I try to hit up friends if, if any friends are around that are off that I can, you know, everybody else my age that I know around here, they all have regular jobs and they can't just drop everything and come throw a baseball with me. So you've really got to just make it happen yourself. So, you know, in the morning you, you get ready and go to the gym and you come back, you do some throwing and I, I usually hang out, maybe make a grocery run, get some food to cook some dinner and try to relax at night and enjoy the downtime while it lasts before you go out back on the road yeah traveling i'm there so it it really is like just not making it up as you're going along but it's it's kind of working to a plan that you've set yourself are you are you a guy who uses like the driveline thing are you working with the weighted balls or are you just doing you know standard stuff that, that i could go well i couldn't go do it in the gym because i'm you know you know nine stone wet through but uh, you know anyone, anyone could essentially go down the gym and do i did i bought some weighted balls because i've heard that guys have used them um, successfully and gain some miles per hour. And I think they help if I don't have a specific program that I get on them with, because I don't want to load 
my arm with as much as I've been throwing last few seasons. I don't want to load it with weight and start really getting after it with weighted balls um, because I think the negative effects that can have from me trying to do that and trying to get signed to maybe go to the MLB rather than, you know, strengthen a little bit, get it ready to go and, and make sure you're healthy enough to pitch well this season and, and at least have somewhere to keep playing and making money. It's an income thing. And so, yeah, I have the weighted balls. I use them my own way. I do certain programs and exercises. I look up YouTube videos sometimes just to see if there's anything new I can throw in there or talk to teammates that do certain exercises. And then um, the body blade, the thing you always seen Trevor Bauer use. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I have one of those to kind of work on small shoulder muscles and rotator cuff exercises. And you got to do a lot of tedious, weird workouts that if you're doing them at the gym, people kind of look at you funny, but you just got to ignore them and yeah. do your own thing. Like you have a specific thing you're trying to do. And then uh, obviously you go heavy on legs, trying to work the legs and the core. So you can, uh, that's where all the strength comes from. There you go, guys. That, that's that's how you become a, a professional baseball pitcher. Um, the, the secret's out. <laughs> Look like a weirdo in the gym. <laughs> exactly. Definitely. So um, I wanted to, to finish the conversation by asking you a, a couple of questions about wh where you've just been and, and where you're going to be in, in the next 12 months. So you've been in Venezuela, um, as you will no doubt be aware. Um, things are pretty fraught there. Um, how did that touch you if at all i know that they uh, from the conversation that you had with ben and jeff the 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 baseball world in venezuela seems to be quite separate from from everything else it is very much separate it's almost like their escape it seemed like the past two years um that's baseball seemed like the thing and I, you talk to guys and they say this so this is not my words but they say you know baseball has kept this country um from falling apart mm. because it's something they look forward to. It's something that they come together about and they can go to games and enjoy it and kind of escape the reality of maybe they're not making enough money to buy food that week or to buy um, certain things that they need or, you know, it's, it's crazy to think about. And we were pretty excluded or kind of sheltered from that aspect because we were in decent hotels with security, mm. but uh, you knew people were not doing well there and uh, you hear them talk about it and they, you know, they, they're, they're wanting to leave or they can't, you know, they can't afford to leave mm. or, uh, you know, they, they want a revolution, but they're, they're afraid because they don't know what will happen, you know. Um, so they, they were talks about it. And, I, you know, you tell, hey, you got to do it. You guys, you know, somebody's going to have to do something eventually to, to make things better here. Mm. And um, for me, I left. And then four days later, all that stuff started with the new leadership trying to take mm. over and the, the, the protests or the, the big gatherings in the streets and, some of the guys were still over there. They got out just in time, but uh, it's crazy and it's good for the country. Definitely good for the country. And I know guys that have been over there that have seen how it was are definitely proud of the people of Venezuela for, for doing what they're doing and trying to make things better for themselves. Um, so it, they had to do it as a group. So it's, it really is encouraging to see, see them do that. It's almost mm -hmm. movie-like. I, I do yeah. think if, after all this is said and done, they might actually make a movie about what's going on over there right now. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's crazy to think about and it's crazy to think about how close I was to being in the middle of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're, they're great people that just, they, they're just, oh, they're just like everybody here. They just want the best or everybody over there. They just want the best for them and their families and, and to see them, you know, going for it is good. So how aware were you of all of this? You, you said you, you knew that people were, were, were hungry. You knew that people were not in a good way. You clearly weren't, weren't aware of the fact that they were, you know, four, four days away from what is essentially a revolution. Were you? 
No, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I knew certain things. Um, it, it, what it, I, I'm thinking all it took was that guy to come out and say, you know, mm. hey, I'm going to be new president. And then mm. people just went behind it. Somebody yeah. had to start it some way. So uh, it's wild to think about it. If that's going on, that's a real thing that's going on. And people, you know, all over the world take for granted what's going on mm. in their country. Or they complain about little things and they're actually able to, you know, eat that day. Uh, they're able to go to the grocery store and buy things that they need um, and be able to afford things that they need mm. in that case. So it's, yeah, it's crazy to think. Uh, you definitely knew there was, you know, bad things going on. You're sheltered from it. You're protected. They're mm. not going to let anything happen to you. And a lot of the people there, they're not going to mess with baseball players because they like that you're there. Yeah. They almost, they respect Americans for coming into their country. Mm. They know that Americans know what's going on in Venezuela. And for mm. you to come to their country, they respect that. And they, more more of the time they want a picture or an autograph more than they want to try and hurt you so mm. they're fine they're great people see so you, you said you were aware of what was going on did you feel a sort of moral obligation to, to sort of keep not not you personally but amongst you and your your collective as players to keep that baseball going to keep something that was you know a, a sunny side of the day for the for the people over there yeah it, it felt good to be a part of what seemed like their you know their favorite part of the day was when mm. baseball came on so it was cool to do that. But, you know, at the same time, you, you, you're not you're nervous. You're always nervous being over there because you don't know what's going to happen. There's there's always, you know, every game has armed security around the perimeter of the stadium. You don't think anything would happen, but you're always kind of on guard knowing that something could never knowing what it could be. But, uh, yeah, it's, it was going over there and playing. You know, it's not the most ideal thing to go do. Um, but like you said, it's a, it's a job. It's I got to do something in the winter and mm-hmm. um it's a good place to play. You pitch against guys like, you know, big league guys, Delman Young, Williams, Estadio, guys that are in the big leagues. And it's for, for me, there's, it's more than just, yeah, go make money. You're, you're getting exposure. You're facing those mm. guys. And if you beat those guys, you're showing people, Hey, I can beat these guys. Mm. And maybe, maybe you get a shot, you know? So it's more than just that. Uh, you, you go there for your career, obviously for work and um, for the experience, you know, you, you definitely learn a lot being over there. Absolutely. See, as you said, you, you did, you, you, you beat both of those guys. Um, and did it, did it give you the exposure? What, what's next for you, Rick? What's, where's your 2019 going to be? Where, where, where have the, where have the replies to your emails been coming from? <laughs> well, I reached out to Mexico and, and that's something that, you know, you kind of want to do, but if you go to Mexico, you're in Mexico for the season or until mm-hmm. they're, um, there's no radar for Taiwan in Mexico. There's no radar for the MLB in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And at 27 years old, I'm, I'm not sure 100% that I want to do that. I'd have to really get a serious offer. But um, right now, I'm, the plan is to go back to Somerset in the Atlantic League, pitch there again, and, um, yeah, go be a part of that. I, I enjoyed my time there. It's an awesome organization. Um, great manager, Brett Jody. John Hunton's the man, the pitching coach. And uh, the guys that are going, it seems like a big group. You know, we all text each other, hey, you going back to Somerset? You going back to Somerset? <laughs> guys say yes it's almost really tempting like hey let's just go let's go let's do it let's have some fun and um let's win some games and see what happens for our careers you know our seasons whatever however it ends up so obviously you said if you're in mexico you're, you're in mexico that's it um, but if you're in somerset that there might be an opportunity of of going back to the mlb i know you touched on this again with with ben and jeff but how close has it been have you, have you ever had that call or have you ever had the, the tap on the shoulder that it's coming and be, do you think that this is maybe the year uh, I mean, it, what you need to see is consistency. Uh, if you're a scout or if you're an MLB team, um, you just give a guy a chance, I guess. Uh, I'm trying to earn that chance. If not, like it's not the end of the world to me if I don't um, 
it's what I've always wanted, obviously, but there's other opportunities, like I was saying. Uh, this year could be the year. You put together enough good years in a row, and then you prove consistency, and um, maybe that's what you need. But for me, in the past, I don't know how close it was. I know there were teams that were looking at me before I went to Taiwan to stick around and try and pitch well enough for one of them to sign me. But it seemed like the delay was that I was a guy with no double-A time, and if mm. they sign a guy to put in double-A, they want that guy to have experience in double-A. So it was almost like a confusing uh, thing where, where, oh, like, I don't have double-A time. Well, the only way around that is to, hey, prove your consistency in the Atlantic League. Prove that you can pitch and get outs in Venezuela. And that's almost proven that you can get double-A, triple-A guys out. That's kind of double-A time. So mm. maybe, you know, maybe this is the year. Um, I can't worry about that. If I'm focused on that, I'm not going to be focused on pitching. Start to the season because I was so worried. I wanted to go back to Taiwan so bad that I just started out the season horribly. And I really had to, like, center myself just – right through the rest of the season trying to get the ARA down low enough to get a winter ball job. So it's about centering yourself again, really uh, staying in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's always about the next hand. Sorry. I said, worry about the rest falls in line. Like I, you got to try and stay in that mindset. And when you're failing, it's tough, but uh, you know, age improves it. Experience improves it. And uh, that's why I'm excited to go back out there and just keep, you know, you learn something new every year. So I just work on it. Great. Well, we'll, we'll definitely be uh, cheering you on from the other side of the, the big pond. Um, so, Rick, thank you very much for your, for your time this morning for you, this afternoon for me. It's been, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, good luck for the, the 2019 ahead. It's been great to talk to you too. I really appreciate it. Love that side of you guys are so you know involved in baseball. It's great to hear and listen to the podcast and, uh, Okay, cheers, Rick. Um, thanks a lot.